0: Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Philippians chapter 2, and we are in week five of our series through the book of Philippians called Audacious Joy. We're kind of working our way through one section at a time. On February 7, 2010, immediately after the Super Bowl, CBS debuted a new show called Undercover Boss. Anybody seen the show? Some of you have, I'm sure, yeah. Um, it's In fact, it may still be going on. I don't know. It's been on for... Nine or ten years, and the whole premise of the show is that a a CEO or founder of a global organization or company, like, and there were dozens that were featured, Seven Eleven, waste management, uh, you know, hotels, and all kinds of businesses. They would actually go undercover, hence the name. They would they would sort of don a disguise, and they would work as a normal employee as a way to kind of figure out what goes on you know, behind the curtain, so to speak. In fact, uh, the description for the series by CBS says this, Undercover Boss is a two-time Emmy Award-winning reality series that follows high-level executives as they slip anonymously into the rank and file of their own organizations. Each week, a different leader will sacrifice their comfort of their corner office for an undercover mission. Now there are two. Th- I've only seen the show a couple of times, but there are two things that stood out to me in the times I watched it. The first one is the lengths to which the these bosses would go to remain anonymous. I mean, some would put on wigs and fake mustaches, fake beards, different outfits, and different things so that they could blend in. And the second thing that stood out to me is the some of the conditions that these bosses would find themselves in: filth, squalor, uh, insects. You know, depending on the organization. And so they really would get sort of knee-deep in the middle of this stuff. Now, the idea, of course, of an organizational leader or even a a boss or even a king for that matter who would uh, assimilate into the common people is nothing new. If you are a Lord of the Rings fan, you recall how King Aragorn disguises himself as Strider, the the ranger of the north. Uh, We see this in classics like Robin Hood... Ivanhoe, and even throughout history. If you're a history buff, uh, you may have read uh, somewhere that King Nero of Rome was said to, at times when he was the the greatest, most powerful man in the universe, uh, he would put on uh, the clothes of a commoner, and he would go out at night and sort of mingle and try to pick up women and start fistfights with men, and he would just sort of blend in to see what or how uh, the hoi polloi, the normal person, would live. So again, this is not a new this is not a new concept. Undercover Boss was not the first to, to uh, come up with this idea of a boss or even a king going incognito to see what's going on. But what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, which is, uh, I guess, a derivation of that theme, um, but it's actually a true story, and it's unlike any story that's ever been told. Philippians 2 tells the story of a creator king, the very king of the universe, the the maker of the universe, who would not simply dress like the people that he made, but would actually become one of them, not simply leaving a corner office, but leaving the perfect confines of heaven itself to be born in a stable in the middle of nowhere. And what he would do, he would do not To see behind the curtain, as it were. He already knew what was going on behind the curtain. But he would do that. He would make this incredible sacrifice out of love to rescue a people enslaved by sin and to unite that same people on mission. So here's kind of the way this section will flow. It's kind of a big indicative imperative sandwich, you might say. It starts with the indicative of what God has done for his people by way of the church. And then there's the imperative, the command, and that is these the plea to be unified again, and then there's the indicative of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the way this passage will flow. I've given it the title, The Humility of God, which may seem like an odd title, but I think it'll make more sense as we move along. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, but let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Here reads the word of the Lord. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So, Paul begins this section with the word so, or therefore, and then this conditional word if... Uh, he says if. Now, in the Greek language, the New Testament was written in Greek, you have three different types or classes of conditions. This is called a first class condition, and the in which the protasis, or what is assumed is actually assumed to be true. And so what Paul is saying, he's not saying if there is any encouragement, as if, you know, hey, you might might find some encouragement in Christ, you know you, you never know. but actually he's assuming this to be true. So he might actually read this as sense. Now we see these, First-class conditions throughout the New Testament. For example, uh, we'll see in just a moment when Satan tempts Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God, well, he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. This is assumed to be true. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ as preached, as raised from the dead. Well, we know that that's how Christ is preached. So, so we might read this as, since, since there is this encouragement, you have these things. Now, now what are these things? Paul lists four in very Trinitarian fashion. Here's what they are. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from the Father's love. Now, the phrase, the Father, is not in there, but I'll show you why I think it's implied. Participation in the Spirit. And heartfelt compassion, which Paul refers to as affection and sympathy. And so these are four gifts from God. Paul says again, he's not saying that you may find these things. He's saying, of course there's encouragement in Jesus. Paul has seen the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. So what he knows is that whatever he himself may be going through, Paul in his imprisonment in Rome, uh, whatever he's going through, whatever his readers may be going through, whatever you and I may be going through, what Paul is saying is there's encouragement in this. Christ died for our sins. We have full forgiveness in Christ. He was raised again from the dead. We have been justified with God. There is tremendous encouragement in knowing that. God has not abandoned his creation and he will not abandon you, Paul says. We know how this story ends and there's there's tremendous consolation in that. The outcome will be we will win because Christ has won for us. So whatever you're going through now, it will give way to a glory that will be revealed in you, if you are in Christ. Several years ago, on a Good Friday, we had it was a different church I was serving. We had a, a service called a Tenebrae service, uh, which is Tenebrae is just Latin for shadows. And and the whole kind of theme or feel of the service is one of you know naturally great sobriety, and, and even the lights are dimmed, and there's a there's a there's a heaviness to it. And what you kind of do the Tenebrae service used to be Kind of a thing that just Roman Catholics did, but in the last decade and a half or so, it's been now Protestants have adopted this, and I think I think for good reason. It's a helpful way to go about it. It's the service again. It's dark and the serious. There's a serious tone, and you kind of linger at the cross of Jesus, understandably. Well, we had this service, and I actually thought it was very effective. I thought it was it was very cross-centered and, and very moving. And at the end of it, the very end, of the benediction. Before I sent people out, I made a comment about the resurrection that was on the horizon. And no sooner had I got those words out of my mouth than a man stormed up to me, very frustrated. He was a university professor in our town. And he said to me, at a tenebrae service, you're not supposed to even mention the resurrection. Now, whenever somebody says to me, you're not supposed to do something, my first thought is, says who? According to whom am I not supposed to do this? So, now, I didn't say to him what I wanted to say. My first thought was, you're not the boss of me, uh, but I was a little bit more mature than that. I said, well, according to whom do we not do that? He goes, well, it's just, it's just not something you do for a tenebrae service. You don't mention the resurrection. And I listened to him and, and, and tried to engage him. But what I said to him after listening was, look, I understand where you're coming from, but we know the end of the story. So why would we live for one moment as if we don't? This is the encouragement that Paul's talking about. Christ has been resurrected. God is not done with our world yet, and He's not done with you or me. As surely as we will share in the suffering of Christ, we will share in His victory. This is why Paul can say, look, whether I live or whether I die, it really doesn't matter because I know what's in store for me, and there's encouragement in that. Now, another gift Paul says is comfort from love. Now, I take this to mean comfort from the Father's love for a few reasons. We don't have time to get into all of them. But for the main reason is that when Paul calls Christians to unity in other letters that he's written, he typically does so through a Trinitarian argument. For example, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now notice the, the, the same order. The first is Christ and His gracious uh, mediating work. And then there is the love of God the Father. And then there is the fellowship or the participation in the Spirit. And so what Paul says is God's love, the love of the Father, is the foundation for all of this. This is behind everything that God does. And there's incredible consolation to being in the love of God, to know that God loves us, to understand that regardless of what we do, regardless of our daily performance, He loves us with a steadfast love that is in Christ. And it's a love that we can never lose. There's there's tremendous consolation in that because then whatever we go through or whoever may accept us or reject us or, or, or whatever our approval ratings are for the day, by our kids or or our parents or our neighbors or our boss or whatever it is, we can know for sure that the, the love that we really have, the love from our Father is actually fully ours. But it is sometimes, I think, and this is what I've experienced over the years, pastoral ministry, it is sometimes difficult to actually believe that God delights in us, that God actually enjoys us, that God is actually pleased with us in Christ. And this is why I've heard so many times over the years, and sometimes from the most pious people you can imagine, people who on the surface have everything together, they've said to me, I just don't believe, I just have a hard time believing that God could really love me that way. I mean, the way that I sin against Him, the way that I fail Him, the way that I, I fall short, I have a hard time believing. In fact, it was the missionary and Bible translator, David Ford, who once wrote, this is perhaps the hardest truth of any to grasp. Do we wake up every morning amazed that we are loved by God? Now, fortunately, Paul tells us elsewhere that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is the next gift that Paul mentions, participation in the Spirit. So not only does the Holy Spirit indwell, live within the believer when the, when the person is made alive in Christ, but the Holy Spirit also immerses every believer into one body of Christ. This body which is a living organism and is being formed into the image of Christ by the Spirit. So as a result of that, what we have is that final gift and that is a heartfelt compassion. Those who understand the gospel, those who have been gripped by the grace of God, necessarily extend compassion and grace to others. And this comes to embody the believing community. So here's our first point this morning as it relates to the reason for this unity. Our reasons to stand together in unity are abundant. The encouragement of Christ, the love of the Father and participation in the Spirit. So whenever this when this triune God saves us, he rescues us not only from sin and hell and eternal condemnation, but also from our own independence. He rescues us from our own spiritual wanderlust, from our lofty notions of ourself, that we are such a good person or noble or spiritual or whatever it is. He rescues us from our jaded views of our own righteousness. When God makes us alive in Christ, He places us into a family of believers who will share our burdens, speak speak to us in grace and truth, accept us, pray for us, love us, forgive us, and extend compassion toward us. And it would be on the basis of these gifts, Paul says, that we are to stand together in unity, which he'll spell out in the imperative. We get to the imperative part of this section, and we see it's all about pursuing unity. Again, verse 2, be of the same mind, he says. Have the same love. Again, verse 2 be in full accord and of one mind. Now, being of the same mind doesn't mean that we necessarily have to agree on everything. Disagreements that are actually discussed in love help to sharpen believers. Think about this great uh, verse, this great proverb. It says, "As, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Well, think about the imagery there. Have you ever... Of course, in the ancient Near East, this would have been right in the forefront of their minds. Iron sharpening iron is steel, clashing against steel, which is going to cause sparks to fly and a loud noise, a crashing cymbal, as it were. And so so it's not that we must agree. As Christians, we are free to disagree on things. Since none of us is perfect nor sees things perfectly, it is the back and forth that God often uses to shape us and, and to mold us. Hopefully, you can think back on some times in your life, and you don't have to go back too far, where someone has disagreed with you respectfully, and that's caused you to change the way you think about something. If you haven't changed the way you think about anything in months or years or decades, I mean, this is a major problem. This is a very significant problem. We should be, as part of that back and forth, the engagement of, uh, in Christ's uh, body, we should be encouraging one another and even thinking differently about things. Now, of course, I'm not talking about core beliefs or, or doctrinal matters. I'm talking about just different perspectives and, and ideas and thoughts and views of things. When Paul talks about unity, he's not talking about uniformity. That is to say, everybody thinking and sounding and looking the same way. He's talking about, is is by these phrases, is a unity of purpose. Trimper Longman, New Testament scholar, has a great commentary on Philippians, says this, Paul does not impose on them, that is the Philippians, an obligation to agree on everything, but wants them to be intent on one purpose, to have the same priority. So, It's okay. You're sitting around at lunch with someone or coffee and they say something that you don't agree with. You don't have to simply nod in affirmation. You're you're able to push back in love. You don't have to agree on everything, but we should be united in our priorities. What are those priorities? Philippians will spell them out. Seeing the gospel advance through the world. This is a priority that we should be united in. Seeing those enslaved to sin set free by Christ's power. We just sang about it. We've been set free. Now we have a message of freedom and forgiveness to share with others. Seeing the hurting cared for, seeing those who are marginalized welcomed into community. Seeing all people, regardless of race, religion, background, moral record, treated with respect and dignity and honored. And we have a real obligation and an opportunity right now to demonstrate that sort of oneness, don't we? With everything going on in the world, somewhere in the middle or the back end of a pandemic, we don't know when this thing's going to be over. We have a real opportunity to demonstrate for a watching world our unity of purpose. The fact that we are gospel-centered. The fact that we recognize the grace that we have received, so we extend grace to others. And think about this. We have coming up very soon, what stands to be the most contentious presidential election of all time throughout American history. In fact, I have no doubt that's what's going to happen. We have an opportunity now to demonstrate our unity of purpose. Yeah, we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to agree on it, but we should be unified in in this purpose to see the good news of the gospel advance, to see people treated with dignity, respect, love, And to see this offer of forgiveness extended. So along those lines, Paul says this in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in order for these priorities to be realized... Paul says very pointedly, you're going to have to stop thinking so much about yourself. Now, this would go against, this would have gone against all the prominent teachers of their day, whether it was Homer or Aristotle. So much of the teaching was was based was rooted in self-actualization, becoming the, becoming the fullest, best version of yourself. And Paul says, no, you're going to have to go against the teaching, the ethos of the day. You're also going to have to go against your natural inclination because the natural inclination of the human heart is to self-preservation, self-advancement. And Paul says, no, you're going to have to put those things aside. Now, why would Paul plead with this church that he loves so much and this church that, frankly, he's seen the gospel advance through? Why would he plead with them not to be conceited or self-absorbed? Because he knows that selfishness is not a sin tendency that anyone ever fully conquers or completely outgrows. Here's our second point. Selfish ambition stands at the heart of the human condition and must be supplanted by, replaced by, a greater passion. I'm going to explain to you in a moment what that greater passion is and how we get it. But from the moment we come out of the womb until the time we are united with Christ, either by death or by His return, we are perpetually inclined to look out for ourselves first and others second. From birth, we are by nature glory seekers. We are hungry for glory. We are desperate for approval. Apart from our Father's love, the love that we talked about just a moment ago, we are pathologically Insecure. Pathologically insecure. Now, some people just hide it better than others. You know how some people just seem so confident? You ever met someone and they just seem so self assured? Especially maybe if you're a student in junior high or high school, you look around and maybe there's another student, it just seems like, oh, she's just so confident, or he just has it all together. Let me let you in on a little secret no one is self assured. No one has that sort of self-confidence. It just doesn't exist. I remember reading uh, an interesting story about LL Cool J. Anybody know about LL Cool J? Ladies love Cool James, this was the, what that's from. LL Cool J kind of provided the soundtrack for my life as a teenager. So I listened to all the, here. Here's a picture of, of LL. Um, as a rapper, he was the self-proclaimed baddest man on the planet. And you may remember uh, the lyrics. He would, he was the one who could take a muscle-bound man and put his face in the sand. This is what this is. LL Cool J. This is a guy who had no fears, no insecurities, no no concerns about self-assurance or anything like that. Or so it so it seemed. And then a few years after he uh, retired from rap, I don't know if you ever retire from rapping, but he moved to become a. He, he was a star on the show NCIS LA. And if you'll notice, and you can, you can fact check me on this, for the first three or four seasons, LL Cool J never appeared in a single scene without a hat on. He always had a hat on, always. And then, now people just thought it was a fashion statement and so on, but then they started to realize, like, this guy always has a hat on. He's never seen without a hat. Funerals, serious events, you know, hosting award shows, he always has a hat on. And then he revealed just a few years ago in his mid-40s, that for his whole life, he struggled with the terrible insecurity that he had about the shape of his head. So he always had to have a hat on. It was an insecurity that he suffered with until he was in his late 40s. The guy would never be seen without a hat on. Now, if LL Cool J has insecurities, everybody has insecurities. Okay, And you may be thinking, well, what about about Tom Brady or Kim Kardashian or LeBron James, whoever it is? It doesn't matter everybody has insecurities. Everybody has self-doubts. To be human is to deal with personal insecurity. And to be human apart from Christ is to be a person in need of constant validation, constant approval. There is a longing for glory. There is a yearning for approval that the soul tries to fill with so many other pursuits, but mainly by elevating ourselves above others. Now, of course, even those who have been made alive in Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus, put their faith in Christ, we still carry around the baggage of the flesh. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with insecurity and selfishness. And we will continue to struggle for as long as we live. We're always tempted to tear down others in our own mind, to esteem ourselves more highly than others. And, of course, one of the ways that we validate ourselves is by harshly criticizing others. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's our neighbor. Maybe it's somebody else that we know. Maybe it's our children. Maybe our, ch- our children's teacher. Maybe uh, politician's talk show host, whatever it is, we tear down others. I mean, it's a cheap way to go about it, but we tear down others and we harshly criticize others as a way to feel better about ourselves. You notice yourself criticizing other people harshly, judging other people, condemning other people in your own mind. This is the opposite of what Paul commands here. Now, how do we escape this vicious cycle? What could motivate and empower us to actually esteem others more highly than ourselves? Look at verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of God. Of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you won't be surprised to hear me say, of course, that this is a controversial passage that has been hotly debated for centuries. And, uh, you know, partly for good reason, because both the deity and the humanity of Jesus have been under attack from various groups for millennia, and this passage actually addresses some of the heresies that popped up in the first four centuries of the Christian church. But here's the thing. This chapter in Philippians was not written primarily to assure us that we have right doctrine. Now, it does that, thankfully. It was not written even to make sure that our theology is sound, although certainly it does that. This chapter was written to give us a new way to look at the trials in our lives. And in particular, a new way to view the threats to unity that face the church of Jesus Christ. And to also reveal to us the power at work in us to obey. Paul says that Christ Jesus was in the form of God. In fact, he uses that word three times in three verses. And in Greek thought, form did not simply refer to refer to. A, a shape, a body shape or appearance. It, it meant something more than that. Now, there is a, there is a Greek word that, that means primarily that. This is a different word that Paul uses. And this word is meant to really capture the idea of nature or identity. And so what Paul says is, by his very nature, by his very identity, Jesus is God, fully God. God. But he took on the form, there's that word again, the nature and identity of a human. He became fully human. So while never ceasing to be God. So he was fully God, 100% God, fully human, 100% human. He was the God-man. Now maybe you're thinking, as we explain this passage, we talk about unity you know, whenever I turn on the news, I, I see stuff that just makes me so angry that I have to react. Or maybe you, you look at Facebook and you say, whenever I look at Facebook, I see a post or somebody saying something that, that makes me so frustrated that I have to react. I have to say something. And certainly, there are times uh, for saying something. I mean, typically not by way of Facebook, but but there are times to address certain issues, of course. But maybe you think, I just... I can't respect, I can't esteem somebody else more highly than myself when it's clear that these people just don't get it. They don't understand. Well, here's how this passage helps us. It helps, to, uh, helps us to honor those who think differently than we do. helps us to respect those and to esteem others as more highly than ourselves. It does so by pointing us to Jesus. Has there ever been a person who set aside his own prerogatives who set aside his own rights, his own privileges, his own interests even, to elevate and make much of someone else more than Jesus, though he was in the form of God, is, he was by very nature God. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Paul's not saying here, again, that that by this phrase empty, that, that Jesus... He relinquished his divinity, that he got rid of he, he, his divinity, nothing of the sort, but that Jesus did not consider his status as God as something to be exploited, something to be used for his own advantage. In fact, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, the expression, he emptied himself, far from meaning he emptied himself of something, is idiomatic for he gave up all his rights. In other words, Jesus refused to use his power to his own advantage. I mean, think about the first the great temptation. Satan says to Jesus, a very hungry Jesus, if you are the son of God, then turn this stone to bread. And Jesus he won't do it. He refuses to use his power for his own benefit. Instead, Paul says He made Himself nothing. He became a servant. We might say it this way. Jesus became a nobody for us. He was humiliated for us. He left His Father's right hand where He forever existed in perfect harmony and He came to the earth as a helpless babe. Now think about this. This is a a crazy thought we can't even get our mind around. The God of the world who, according to John 1, oversaw all of creation, determined to sit in soiled clothing in a manger and actually had to wait for his mother to wipe the spit up off his chin. This is the God of the universe. Jesus became a servant and not just a servant. I believe this is meant to point us back to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was beaten and bruised for us. He became an object of scorn and derision for us. In fact, he loved us so much that he was obedient even to death, the most scandalous and shameful death of all, death on a cross. And Paul means for us to reflect on this. If God the Son was willing to give everything up, was willing to put the rights and the needs and the interests of of everyone else ahead of himself, then can't we put away our petty preferences and differences for the good of others? Now, when I say that, I realize. I realize from from almost 20 years of pastoral experience and also observing my own personal failures that we need more than just an example. An example alone is not going to cut it. We need more than just an example, which is why this keeps getting better and better. And I was studying this this week and then going over it again yesterday, and I I just couldn't help but nerd out on this this verse 5. It's just so good. Look at verse 5 with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, notice in what I just read, Paul doesn't say, as the King James says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Because the King James presents this as purely an example. Christ is our example. That really misses the point. The text reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is like chocolate ganache. This is like New York-style cheese. This is so dense and so rich. When Christ left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of this earth... It wasn't just to rescue us from sin, although praise God it was for that. When Jesus suffered a cruel death on the cross, it wasn't just to pay the penalty for our rebellion and to bring us to God as righteous, although it definitely accomplished that. When Jesus served others and sacrificed His very life for undeserving sinners, it wasn't just to give us an example to follow, although it did that. Jesus did all those things, as Dennis Johnson points out so beautifully, To reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that his mindset, that is, his joy in selflessly serving others, is becoming your mindset. Now, here's our final point. Jesus himself conveys his mindset to us through the Holy Spirit by means of the ministry of the church. Now, what this means is it's not simply by trying harder to love difficult people that we love difficult people. It's not simply by personal resolve to to care about and to serve people who think differently than we are that we accomplish that task. It is by the work of the Spirit, going back to verse 1, the participation in the Spirit, who as we depend on Him, we'll gradually replace our conceited interests with a greater passion and that is a passion for the glory of god and the good of our neighbor remember i said that that selfish ambition must be replaced supplanted by a greater passion that greater passion again is for the good of our neighbor for the glory of god the church fathers were adamant that sin is a terminal disease like cancer And it can only be overcome by what they call the medicine of immortality, which they say comes in the humanity of Jesus through the Spirit, by the ministry of the church, what they would call the sacraments. But but as Baptists, we say that it is the ministry of the church. It is by the ministry of the church, that is, as we gather together and worship together and fellowship together and participate in the Lord's table together, and we pray for one another together, and we, and we respond to the ministry of the Word together, as we do all those things, the Holy Spirit begins to chip away and replace our self-centeredness and our selfish ambition with actually a passion to see others, uh, to see the good of others, and to see God glorified. This is why, by the way, we need the church. This is why this is why we're so concerned about gathering together by re- reuniting as a church, not so that we can say we had a certain number of people on Sunday or break any numerical records. We, we don't care about that. We want people to be together so that we can, we can be ministered to by the Holy Spirit who will gradually work in us to conform us into the image of God's Son. So we don't find ourselves falling again and again to self selfish ambition to conceit, to arrogance, to self-centered ways. We see the Spirit working in us so that we actually desire the good of others. Now, of course, because Jesus does all the work from beginning to end, which is the theme of this book as we're going to see, Jesus gets all the glory and honor. Look at verses 9 through 10. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we talk a lot about the suffering of Christ, and and, and then for good reason, we should. In fact, Jesus himself, in his last few weeks with his disciples, he says to them repeatedly, Look, I've come to suffer. This is why when when Jesus would perform a miracle, he would tell the the people who observed it, Look, don't tell anybody. Because I've not come just to, to receive the sort of the gawking approval of people waiting for me to perform another miracle. I've come to suffer and die. So we talk about God's suffering as well we should, but we dare not do that at the expense or only without talking about the glory of Christ. The suffering. He is the suffering servant, but He is also the exalted King. His name is above every name and before Him. Every knee will bow either in forced submission to his kingship or in grateful worship. And so what Paul says is, he tells this church at at Philippi, he says, Yes, I know you're suffering and I know that there's a seed of division that's growing in your church. And we'll see later these two ladies who are fighting. But he pleads with them, be unified. By the encouragement of Christ, in the love of the Father, through the participation of the Spirit, be unified. Stand together in unity. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but be unified in your purpose. Be united in seeing the gospel transform your community and your world. And then he says, Christ has given you the example to follow, but he's not just your example. It will be Christ in us the power of the Spirit mediated through the ministry of God's gathered people by which we are unified, stand together, and are able to love our neighbor better than ourselves. And indeed, Paul will say, we have many gifts that God has given to the church in Christ, 10,000 reasons and more to praise Him and to worship Him and to celebrate His goodness. So my prayer this morning for you is that You will bow to Jesus in grateful worship rather than in forced submission because you have rebelled and not trusted in Christ by faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the reasons that we have to worship you are indeed endless. Ten thousand reasons, and that's just a number. It doesn't mean that's the specific amount. We have more than that. We know that you have given us all the treasures that are in Christ by faith alone. And I pray this morning, Lord, for the person who's here who is really struggling in his or her faith. I pray that you would work by your spirit to affirm, to to encourage, to help that person know if she's in Christ, that she is deeply loved by you, that you enjoy her, you delight in her, and I pray for the one who's here this morning, Lord, who, who doesn't know Christ. Could even be a person who's been part of this church for decades. Maybe it's a person here who's just investing in. Maybe it's somebody who's watching online from their office or, or, or kitchen, and they've never really turned in you to faith, in faith to Jesus. Lord, we know that there's no one who is beyond the reach of the gospel, and there's no one beyond your power to save. Will you perform a miracle this morning of salvation? And will you, will you unite our hearts around this purpose to see Christ exalted as more disciples are made in every part of the earth, every part of the world, more worshipers who can sing of your glory and your splendor and your majesty. We ask all this in Christ's mm-hmm. name.